0: Hi everyone, it's Henry DeVries. Welcome to our weekly marketing with a book and speech podcast. Got a great session for you today. Uh, Thank you so much for carving out some time to be with us. And this is where we showcase people who can help you with your marketing with a book or speaking to promote a book. We always say that publishing a book is the number one marketing tool. Speaking is the number one marketing strategy and that The race really begins. The starting line is when you publish the book, not when you finish the book. So I got that mixed up. The starting line is when you finish the book, the race keeps going from there. So here we go. I still don't think I got that right, but Joel's gonna set us straight. We have an author today, uh, Joel Goldberg, who's gonna be with us. And first, Joel, we like to do an author roll call. So I want everybody to unmute themselves And we'll start with uh, David and then Jackie and Brad. Uh, So tell us uh, your name and your book. David, whenever you're ready.
1: Thank you, Henry. Uh, My name is David Goldman. And my book is The Road to Happiness. And my forthcoming book is Can You Hear the Harmony?
0: Thanks. Jackie and Brad. Okay, hi everyone. I am Jackie Klusdabor and my book is My Earthquake Preparedness Guide. How about uh, uh, Brad and then we're gonna go with uh, Diane. Hi everybody, nice to be here. Uh, My name's Brad Pierce and my book is called Sustainability Mind Shift. Thanks. And then uh, did I say Diane and then John? Hello. My name is Diane Ployce. My book is Questions to Ask When Selecting a Franchise. Thanks. And uh, John and Mark. Hi, I'm John Lockhorst, and my book is Mission Critical Leadership. Thanks. Hmm. Uh, Mark and then Bill. Hi, my name is Mark LeBlanc, and my book is Defining You. Okay. Uh, Bill?
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Bill Leiter, and my upcoming book is Mastering Your Balance.
0: Great. And I think we got everybody there. And uh, thanks to our producer, Suzanne Hagen, for uh, helping us put these together. So let's, let's go. Let's get into it. Uh, we're going to hear from a new author, Joel Goldberg. Joel, when he's not helping the Kansas City Royals with television broadcasts, he's helping companies with presentations. He runs a speaking business out of Kansas City. And as a result of working with him, his prospects and and attendees report that they have higher morale and that there's just better teamwork at a company. He's uh, interviewed everybody on TV from um, uh, Will Ferrell to, to Wayne Gretzky. And he says it's not all glamorous. Uh, He's covered everything from snowshoe baseball to tick racing on a pool table. And yes, beer was involved. So with that, let's uh, please welcome new author Joel Goldberg.
2: All right. Well, first off, thank you all for being here today. And I I want to talk a little bit about uh, on an expanded level, of what Henry just gave you. Because I can walk away right there and and Henry summed it up perfectly. But the book is Small Ball, Big Results. It was just out in December. And I wanna tell you how I got to there because quite frankly, I never dreamed that I would write a book other than knowing that I had a lot of stories and at some point they might come up and maybe I should take some notes. But I grew up a diehard sports fan outside of Philadelphia. And then Chicago, we moved there when I was 13. I drove people crazy. I drove my teachers crazy. I could remember as early as seven, eight years old, teachers complaining to my parents that all I wanted to do was talk about last night's game. I also knew very early on that I had no chance of playing sports at a higher level. I wasn't awful, but I was more close to awful than great. So I knew there was no professional sports career, but the dream was to go on TV and to be able to talk about it. I wanted to be the local sports anchor or sports center when that became a thing. And I made it. I ended up breaking into television in 1994 out of the University of Wisconsin. I had a job in a town called Rhinelander, Wisconsin, which is, I like to say, as far north as the end of the earth. It was somewhere near the upper peninsula of Michigan. I went from Rhinelander to Madison, Wisconsin, then went to St. Louis the day after Mark McGuire hit his 70th home run. I just missed that. But I covered two World Series and two Super Bowls there. And then I made the move with my family here to Kansas City in 2008. And it was one of the greatest moves and decisions of my life, which people didn't understand at the time. So I went from covering a great baseball team and tradition in St. Louis to one that had not a whole lot going on in Kansas City. One of the things that I like to tell my speaking audiences is that my speeches, and the book for that matter, it's not about baseball. It just involves a lot of stories from baseball. As the late, great Buck O'Neill, and I like to work in bobbleheads sometimes, uh, Buck O'Neill, legendary Negro Leagues player, coach, manager, he had a quote where he said, nothing better than baseball, it teaches all the lessons. And, And what that means to me is that Baseball takes place every day when the season goes. We oftentimes can work 18, 19, 20 days in a row, traveling on the road, uh, home. Whatever happens today is over. You have a bad day and you move on and you have to focus on tomorrow. The show, as I say, always goes on. Football, you get a week. A lot of the other sports, you get a few nights off. But life goes on. And I learned this my first year in Kansas City. In a couple of ways. First off, I met their new general manager, a man by the name of Dayton Moore, who I wrote about in the book, one of the greatest human beings in terms of taking care of people and culture that you can meet. And I remember when I met him, I said, what are you trying to do here in Kansas City? This is one of the worst franchises in baseball. And he said, I want to build a championship culture, which would ultimately be the topic of my speeches. So well, what do you mean by that? And he said, I'm not just talking about the 25 players in the locker room. I'm talking about the ticket takers and the beer vendors. I'm talking about the ushers and the fans, not just in Kansas City, but in the region, because a culture involves everyone. So here I am in 2008, and one of my broadcast partners was a man by the name of Paul Splitter. He's the Royals' all-time wins leader. And I was still a fan. Even though I've been in the business a long time, I'm, I'm traveling with these guys. I'm getting to know them personally. I wanted them to win, and they were losing every single night. And Split, as we called him, Split pulls me aside one night and he says to me, Joel, this losing is going to get the best of you. He said, just remember this. There are a lot of important people that are paid a lot of money to lose sleep over losing or to lose sleep over these losses. And you're not one of them. And at first I thought, yeah, but I, I care about these games. The message was win or lose. You have a job to do. Win or lose you have to bring the energy and bring that story to your audience. I'm the pregame and postgame show host of every Royals televised game. So win or lose, I'm there, whether it's 10 at night or three in the morning. And we had a game that ended at 314 in the morning one year in St. Louis. And I made the mistake of sending out a tweet saying, is anyone watching? And a lot of people were offended that I would ask the question. Someone's always watching. And I came to learn that over the years because it's not just about wins and losses, Yes, people want to see their team win, but I remember one year getting a message from someone in the military, a tweet, great game last night. I watched it on the American Forces Network, loved every minute of it, loved every minute of it. We lost 13 to nothing. There was a three-hour rain delay, and it was a terrible game, but he didn't care. It gave him a piece of home. A win would have been nice, but just the game was good enough. I'd hear from people who would say something along the lines of my mom, my grandmother, my father is in the hospital or even in hospice. They don't have a whole lot of days left. The one thing they look forward to is watching you guys every night. And that's when I understood something because after the 2008 season, I was stopped in the airport. I was very anonymous in Kansas City at that point. And this guy pulls me aside. We're getting ready to go on vacation. And he says, Hey, you're you're that guy on TV, aren't you? I said, Yeah, oh, somebody recognizes me. He said, You do a great job. I said, Thank you. So, but I gotta tell you something. I feel sorry for you. I said, What do you mean you feel sorry for me? And he said, You got to talk about all those losses every night. And my default response was. Don't feel sorry for me. I'm living my dream. But as all those other stories started to happen, I understood that there was a much greater purpose to what I was doing. And I wish I knew all that back when I started. I wish that there was a manual for all of this. And this is so much of what I write about in the book that somebody would have taught me in college beyond how to be a journalist. I had little bits and pieces of it. And in the book, I wrote about how I broke into television. 1994... And I'm getting rejected from every television station that I applied to. We didn't have internet. We didn't have YouTube. So I had some service that I think I paid 50 bucks a month for, 30 bucks a month for. And you'd get all the codes to these TV stations and you'd send out a resume tape. And every single one rejected me. The last one that rejected me was a small station in Missoula, Montana. And I'm sitting at my parents' home in Chicago and thinking I'm never going to live my dream. So I picked up the phone, and I am not a cold caller, but it was too important to me. And I started calling all these TV stations. Hi, can you tell me the name of your news director? Sure, it's Dave Smith. Thank you. Click. Wait 10 minutes. Maybe they won't recognize my voice. Hello, Mr. Smith. My name is Joel Goldberg. I just graduated from the University of Wisconsin. I just happen to be passing through Terre Haute next week. Would it be possible for me to drop off a resume tape? I know you don't have an opening, but I'd love to meet you. I wasn't going to Terre Haute, but I was after he said yes, and I started driving all over the country, and within a couple of months, I had my first television gig. I had started to build relationships. I still didn't understand this with the athletes. The first baseball player I ever interviewed was a game, Milwaukee Brewers and the Chicago Cubs, and I had to get something for the the news that night, and I was working in Madison 70 miles away. We didn't go to a lot of Brewers games. We didn't cover that sport a whole lot. So I was nervous. And I found the friendliest guy that I knew about Mark Grace of the Chicago Cubs. Very affable, lovable guy. I walked up to him and I said, Hi, Mark. My name is Joel Goldberg. I work for the NBC television affiliate in Madison, Wisconsin. Can I grab you for a second? And he looked at me and he said, You don't touch me. And I was so scared. And he let it hang for what seemed like about 30 seconds it was probably two seconds and i was pretty sure at that point my broadcast career was over and then he looked back and he got this big grin and he said i'm just messing with you kid and the word messing wasn't quite messing it was a different one he let me off the hook but over time what i came to understand was how often do we all ask for something without knowing someone how often do we ask for something without building the relationship I failed with that even after the Mark Grace moment with Albert Pujols. I was with him in St. Louis from 2001 to 2007. Greatest player in baseball within a few years of his emerging. He blew me off every time I asked for the interview. And I was traveling with him. I finally broke through in 2007. It was nerve-wracking moments. Game would end, he'd have hit two home runs. The producer would say in my ear, who do you have for your post-game guest? I'd say no one because he would walk right by me. But I walked up to him in 2007, and I said, Albert, can I talk to you in private? Can I talk to you about something privately? He said, sure. I said, no, no television camera, no interview. It's off the record. He said, okay. We went down to the visiting batting cage in Houston. He said, what's up? And I said, I have this job opportunity in Kansas City. And I know that after growing up in the Dominican, you went to high school in Kansas City and junior college there as well. Nobody knows about this. I hope you'll keep it a secret, but I wanted to pick your brain and see what you thought of Kansas City. He said, it's a great place to live, great place to raise a family. I can't tell you if the job is good or not, but I know you love the city. Your secret's safe with me. Let me know how it goes. Two weeks later, I got the job. I pulled him aside. We were in Milwaukee. I told him, he said, let me take you out for lunch to celebrate. And we went out to lunch to a little Puerto Rican restaurant in the back of a grocery store. Me and the best player on the planet talking about life in baseball. And from that moment forward, anytime I wanted the one-on-one interview, anytime that I needed something, he gave it to me. Even offered to sell me his house. Joel, you want to buy my house in Kansas City? "Uh, Albert, we don't really make the same amount of money. I'll rent it to you. We're good. He's taken care of me ever since. And he said something to me. Years later, I said, Albert, I got to confess to something. You used to scare the living daylights out of me. I wasn't the biggest fan of yours. And he got embarrassed and he said, Joel, he said, everybody wants something from me. Once I trust you, I'll do anything for you. I learned how to build the trust. I saw the Royals win a world championship. I got this ring out of it. I also understood that when I wore this ring around town or to the games, I don't as much anymore. If I wore it like this, fans enjoyed it but when I turned it around so they could see the KC, they could take a picture of it. it. wasn't about me, it was about them. So fast forward to the book, right after the Royals won a world championship, such an amazing story to go from nothing to building a culture and a championship. A friend of mine, Jason Kander, who's a politician, almost won U.S. Senate in Missouri, big Royals fan, had asked me what I was up to. I said, I spoke to a couple of groups, but mostly just a few little things in the off season, some games here, some games there. He says, you should start a speaking business. I said, I should do what? He said, with all the information and stories you have, you should start a speaking business. So I did. And everybody said to me, if you have a speaking business, you have to write a book. what am I gonna write a book about? So I started a podcast and I started interviewing CEOs and executives and people with stories to tell that were as interesting as baseball. And on the podcast, I asked people three questions. It's really the only baseball I did on the show. What's the biggest home run you've hit in your career with your business? What's the biggest swing and miss you've taken? And what is small ball? What are the little things that add up to the big things? And suddenly the answers started coming. And those small ball answers, the little things that add up to the big things in baseball, business and life, it clicked. I have a book. And then I thought, okay. What if we write it like a baseball game, we meaning me, and every chapter will be an inning, and each inning will be a topic, and there'll be a top half and a bottom half, one baseball story, one business story. So the chapters and innings in this book are purpose. I found my purpose from those tweets that I talked about, and I went to visit the troops over in Kuwait on a USO tour and got to understand how much we meant to them every single night. I wrote about people in the second chapter. David Glass, the owner of the Kansas City Royals, former CEO of Walmart said to me, you do everything through people. If we all got paid on what we individually could produce, none of us would be worth much. But if we can manifest our knowledge and our talents and so forth through other people, then we can win. He did that with the Royals. He passed away a little over a year ago. I'll carry his words of wisdom with me and I wrote about him proudly. Chapter three was positivity. Diehard Royals fan, 30-year-old young woman, police officer, suddenly was battling ALS. She's a good friend of mine today. I was proud to write about her. Most positive person I know. Fourth chapter was trust, Albert Pujols. Fifth chapter, face-to-face. The importance of getting to know someone. Sixth chapter, paying attention to detail. All those little things that make us better. Next chapter, hitting the curve. What happens when things don't go as you expect? After that, read the room. I have to read people every single day. We all do. When's the right time to get that interview? It's a little bit tougher during the pandemic, but doable. Next chapter, don't give up. Story involving a man from the military who had to come back home, he was a US Army Ranger, and bring the remains of his brother-in-law home who he watched get killed. Every role matters, no matter what your team or your culture, everyone matters. Second to last chapter was pivot. Buck O'Neill, the Negro Leagues, 1920, they're told, we don't want you in the big leagues. You're not allowed. That's fine. We'll start our own league. We all know about the pivot during the pandemic. And finally, the last chapter was Pass It On. And this is what I want to end with. We all have the ability every single day to learn and also to pass it on. I've been so lucky to do that. This is brand new. I haven't spoken about this yet. I received an email this morning from a young lady I haven't heard from for about five years. Uh, She broke into television and she sent, and this is just a little bit of the email. She sent me an email today that said, I hope you're doing well. I am writing simply to say thank you. Thank you for all you did for me as a mentor. Your kindness in responding to a 19 year old college kids tweet was more than enough. And I went on to mentor her a little bit as she broke into television. People like you willing to share of themselves in this way is exactly what will continue to open doors for women, people of color, and all the others that wouldn't have been allowed in baseball and sports just a few decades ago. I can't wait to tell my daughter that absolutely she can be the next Joel Goldberg if she wants to. That email this morning, and I haven't replied yet because I just haven't had had to process it, and that's the short version. She got out of television. She got married. She just had a kid. She just reached out to tell me that. And I think that this book has a lot of that in it. This book has plenty of baseball for people like Henry that love baseball. But the best compliment I think that I can get is to be able to pass on these messages. To hear from someone when they say, you know what? I don't like baseball a whole lot. And then they always think I'm going to be offended. I'm not. But I really like the message. It got through to me it's the power of storytelling. I believe that my superpower is storytelling and putting people at ease. And it's great to have all of you here today. Thanks for allowing me to share. Um, If anyone is interested in a copy and I can get everybody a a PDF copy, please leave your email in the chat box. I'm happy to send you that or a book as well. And uh, I appreciate everybody listening today. Thank you.
0: Great job, Joel, but you're not done yet.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You never are. Well, you are once Mark says you're done.
0: Yeah, right. Right. When Mark gets the hook, it's over. But until then, we can talk. So I shifted gears when you said it. So I think I got to ask you your three questions. Uh, What's been your biggest home
2: run? Yeah, that's a good one. There's so many, but I, I really believe that it was that Albert Pujols moment for this reason. I was putting people on pedestals and it's become very instructive to me with not just baseball players and athletes, but with CEOs. People in high level positions like that are so often treated differently. And they get all the perks and bells and whistles of being big time. And it's amazing how people wanna give important people free stuff when they can afford it they can afford it more than anyone. But what's awkward is when they're looked at funny, they're treated funny. And as soon as I understood to put the camera down and actually trust in someone's opinion, I understood that there's a great way to connect with people by just asking and listening. That that was the home run to me and it was something that nobody ever taught me.
0: Mark LeBlanc teaches nine best practices. Number nine is about listening and responding appropriately. Um, we have a 10th one is like listening and keep your big mouth shut but maybe there's an 11th asking somebody's opinion and listening to them and acknowledging them that's huge so thank you for that that was great so the swing and the miss what's been the swing and the
2: miss? you know it's it's interesting because in some ways the swing and the miss could have been everything i did wrong with Pujols and all those but for the interest of coming up with a different answer. Um, I I think for me, it would just be understanding that we all have a role to play. And I didn't understand that. I was always so wrapped up in wanting to get the next best thing. Well, I'm here and now I wanna get there. And I got so caught up in whatever the next step was that I oftentimes would forget to enjoy the journey. I would often put so much pressure on myself if I was coming off the bench, to use a sports term as the backup anchor, that I had to get it right today because this was gonna be the step that got me to the next job. I'm not as good as this person on TV. How am I ever gonna do this? And once I stopped comparing myself to others and just being me, everything was fine. But I've really, really struggled with that for a while. And I'm in a profession where everybody criticizes you and everybody looks at you and I just don't just doesn't bother me anymore
0: hmm. that's a nice takeaway so when you say small ball I don't think you're talking about the white one with the red stitching uh, what do you really mean by small ball
2: well I you know it's it is the little things and, and they're different I mean this is this is a key to me all of these small ball elements I believe will help you have the big wins. And some of them are just conceptual. I mean, no, nobody says, Boy, I just hit a home run by building trust with this guy,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? It's a process, it's something that takes a long time. Every single thing in here is not something you do overnight. Um, in the chapter, Paying Attention to Detail, the Royals have a longtime coach named Rusty Kuntz. He's the first base coach. And if you, a real diehard baseball fan, or if you're in Kansas City, you would know he's kind of the Yoda or the Jedi of base running and outfield play. He's a guy that can actually help a team steal an extra 30 bases in a year. And I remember one time we were in San Francisco, great place to have a day off. And he said, I saw him the next day. I'd wandered around the city all day. And I said, Rusty, what'd you do yesterday? I said, what, what did you do yesterday uh, for the day off? I walked over to the Golden Gate Bridge and he said, I don't have time for that. I was scouting video for the game in three weeks from now in my room all day long and got room service. There's no time for that. Now I would argue that you should maybe have a little bit more fun, but here's a guy that wakes up every day. I wrote about this in the book and makes a list of things he can learn that day. And how is a guy that's 65 that has been coaching since the eighties. So beloved by players that are now in their forties and retired and guys coming in the league at 22 or 23. He has this energy. And he's learned how to stay relevant through the generations by asking, being curious, by listening as we've talked about. But uh, to to answer the small ball question, small ball to me, a little bit of what I said with David Glass is about the people. It's about every relationship. It's about building long-term relationships. It's walking into the clubhouse every day. And when all the media is off in the corner doing the big scrum of interviews, it's me telling my camera, hey, just hold on to the microphone. I, I don't need anything and walking and going over and talking to one of the guys that doesn't speak a whole lot of English and building trust and relationship with him and just asking how they're doing. That's the small ball to me every day. Nice. So
0: what's ahead? What's the plan? Whoa. What do you need help with?
2: Well, I think the plan going forward, I'll keep doing this because I'm practicing because Henry taught me this weekend how to, um, to do this. Although really Henry, wouldn't this be the same? In my no, case. no,
0: that's, that, well, since you put your face on the cover of the book, it mm-hmm. is redundant, but for most of us, it's our face and our cover.
2: Um, the gentleman up on top of the screen, Mark LeBlanc, informed me before the thought even popped into my head that there are two more books in this series, and I, my first thought was, can we wait a little bit, Mark? Can we at least get to, you know, a year out? So I will take the year off from writing, and, and then we'll get back to it again next year, because as long as I'm doing my Rounding the Basis podcast, as long as I'm doing baseball games, the stories keep popping up every single day. Uh, so there'll be more versions of this, and, and it'll be small ball, big something, and we'll, we'll work on that. I think we already, we already have some ideas, but I don't know if I'm allowed to say those yet or not. But I, I think that going forward, there's been a lot of clarity for me because I – spoke the last three years about building culture and I was kind of all over the place, but I could also talk about networking. I could also talk about relationships. And now I feel like I have this book and to me, small ball is culture. And within that book are 13 topics under the umbrella of small ball. And so now I want to be able to take all of these moments and I'm, I will be the first to say, I'm not going to be the guy that teaches bankers how to, do the numbers better or educators how to teach math better or whatever it is, fill in the blank. I'm not going to tell baseball players how to hit. Although for some reason, I seem to get a lot of people on Twitter that say, "Will you tell the hitting coach to tell them, no, I'm not going to do that. It's not my job. But what I do know is I know how to tell stories. And what I have noticed is that people rem- remember stories, people remember those moments. And so I think my hope going forward now is to have a little bit more structure and to start bringing the messages of this book and so many of these experiences to others so that hopefully like that email I just got, there's nothing greater than than getting that response saying, you affected my life. You changed my life. I had a woman a couple of years ago at an HR event that I was speaking at that emailed me after and said, I just have to let you know selfishly I went there for one reason and one reason only it was to the job fair to find a new job and I didn't get one and I'm pretty miserable where I'm at right now but after hearing you on stage you have given me the energy and the motivation and the tools to go to work and make the best of what I have and find my purpose until I move on I thought boy this is this is pretty cool this is something that I love to do and um, she reached out to me maybe a year or so later and said I found this new job I wanted to thank you so I think that that's the hope going forward is that, that I could take the mess. I really don't care how many books I sell. Of course, we all want to sell books. But if, if this can get me in some doors and gives me a chance to connect with people, then I, I feel like I have you know, just, just a greater purpose, Henry, beyond baseball. And, and you spend a lot of time in sports. And I still say the same thing. They pay me to talk about a game every day. That's pretty awesome. But now what can I, what can I do with it? And now I feel like I have that platform and, and the ability to leverage it.
0: Well, welcome to the Indie Books family. Um, now, Joel, I, I, you're a humble guy. I don't know, you wouldn't go there, but um, I would call you a semi-celebrity. So, and it's because you're on TV and you're associated with baseball. So uh, getting you booked has a little different appeal because when they're putting on the event, you can be the opening or the closing person. And I recommend a book to you if you want to expand. It's The Message of You by Judy Carter. And Judy was a stand-up comedian who found out you can make a heck of a lot more money as an opening or closing speaker. And what you have to do is uh start the meeting off with a bang or end it with one. And then they're gonna put all the boring people in between who's gonna cover the new uh, tax reporting form and the strategic uh, initiative that they're doing with the, the TPS report. So you, you have a lot more potential in this business here. I know we're all. Mark likes to say, we're all in love with our potential. Um, the potential I wanted to bring to everybody else's attention is the family cross-promoting each other, so you know, are there ways you could go on and endorse each other's books? Or I, I contacted Joel today. I have a speaking gig. It looks like it'll be in the fourth quarter in Kansas City. Um, I'm looking for ways to bring him in on that. Um, I introduced him to uh, Jeff Foley. I knew that you'd done the thing in Kuwait and Jeff does a lot on leadership and maybe there's something that you could do together that Jeff has a love of baseball. You know, he played center field for West Point. So there's these connections we have and the more we learn about them, we're able to cross promote each other. That's part of what the family is about. So looking forward to uh, a lot of you um, getting to know Joel and the the days ahead. Um, now let's see. I was seeing there questions. Oh, a question Joel from uh, Jeff is, uh, "What's your favorite baseball movie?" Or if you have a couple of favorites, uh, share them, please. Yeah,
2: I will. And um, good to meet the general. I, you know, one of the cool things, and and, and I'll email you later, General. Um, one of the, I think one of the really cool things about my job is the access I get to people like you and I don't mean you I mean obviously we all have access to each other here today but uh, whether it was going over to Kuwait on that USO tour which by the way and you'll understand this uh, I'm off tangent a little bit here but I, I was just so struck that the troops were all thanking us and we were trying to thank them you know we watched a baseball game and broadcast a baseball game at 3 30 in the morning at Camp Buring in Kuwait live on television and they all want to thank us, George Brett being there and all that. And so, you know, a lot of more perspective for me on on that too. And I, so I've been lucky enough to meet all these generals and admirals and I know prefer Army over those Navy guys. But anyway, um, <laughs> as for your your uh ba- baseball movie question, I my favorite's always been Bull Durham. I, I just there there's something about the minor league life and the sort of the innocence and, and also some of the silliness to all of that, um, there's just, I love that movie. And, and all the rest of them, obviously, are are, are great. I mean, um, The Natural is a great movie. Field of Dreams gets me every single time. Um, Bill just asked, I'll jump in since I see it right now. What did you think about Moneyball? I loved Moneyball. I, I think I still, to this day, get people to ask me about Moneyball. Not that I was in the middle of that, but what I loved about the movie Moneyball, one, it was very real, and two... I think it's it's a it's a movie that applies to more than baseball. And so in many ways, when I'm talking about more than baseball, Moneyball did that so beautifully. And I actually watched it with the Kansas City Royals, not to get too deep into the weeds here, but the Royals became the best team in baseball in 2014 and 15, in part because they built the best bullpen in baseball. Bullpens were cheap. And it wasn't just we have a guy in the ninth. We have four guys that could do the sixth, seventh, eighth, the ninth. And suddenly the cost of getting a reliever in baseball become became really expensive because of what the Royals did. They found that market inequity. And so I'm, I'm always interested in sort of what the next thing is in baseball. And that's true in business and, and life too. Favorite sports movie of all time is Hoosiers. I'm more of a baseball guy than a basketball guy, but um, I generally like all of them.
0: Moneyball... Very interesting in that um, Michael Lewis who wrote that also wrote uh, Blindside. And as you say, it's more—it's—it's it's about more than football. Blindside is about when Lawrence Taylor came along as a linebacker and came in on the blind side of the quarterback, the second most highest paid player had to be the um, left tackle in football because that was the person who could stop your quarterback from getting killed. Even, even with the rules. It's, it's interesting also, because a lot of us are baseball people. Um, I've covered the NFL and I can tell you this is a total, you say, well, they're all in sports, totally different mindset. The NFL sees it as a war and you only have a limited time every week to prepare for this war. And then and, and if you waste any of that time, it's malpractice against the team. But uh, Joel, uh, tell a little more about that attitude in baseball uh, because it is quite a different attitude. And I think it's more to Mark LeBlanc's uh, stay in second gear strategy.
2: The the time to move in uh, fourth and fifth gear is, is generally in the playoffs. And what baseball players learn, and when I finish this thought, I want to answer Brad's question on there, but what baseball players learn is that you have to do this for the long haul. You also have to be wired to handle failure. That's why baseball's so important because you have to get back up potentially 10 minutes, 20 minutes later or the next morning. And I experienced this my first year in 2008 because I went from St. Louis where I rotated jobs with other guys on a staff and we rotated between hockey and baseball and other things to being 100% baseball here. And and I'm doing every pregame show, every postgame show, and every in-game report. I'm the only one in the country that does that. It's one of the benefits of being in a market without an NBA or an NHL team is that they don't need to hire anyone else. But what it also means is that if I want to be, we're all replaceable, but if I want to be less replaceable, I don't ever want to miss games. I've missed seven games in 13 years. Six of them I was working in Kuwait, so I was still working for the broadcast and then filing reports you know, I've, all, I've missed one one actual game and that was for death in the family in 2008 and there is there's a pace that you have to you have to have to this or you're not going to survive and when we moved here in 2008 i had a five and a two-year-old at that point and i remember just flipping out. I think my wife wanted me to do this, this, and this. And I was so overwhelmed because of how many days in a row I've been working that I just, I just remember leaving the house so overwhelmed. And I think my, my father-in-law told my wife, cause he'd been a traveling salesman forever. Hey, you guys are gonna have to figure this out and have some balance here because he's not going to be able to do a whole lot. And I remember how overwhelmed I was. This was early May. There were still over four months to go on the season. And now what I've learned over the years, and I think this is true for baseball players too, is that you recognize when you get in those moments and you understand how to get out of them. And it's not the same every year, but I will hit the wall sometimes in June, sometimes in July, sometimes in August, sometimes in May. And I just have to find ways to recharge and then I'm fine. And then when I get to the all-star break, four days off seems like a month off and I recharge and I'm fine. There was one year I couldn't recharge from the all-star break. I think it was after the world championship. And I just, I was flat the rest of the way. And you find a way to fight through it. And the last um, thought on that, Henry, it's actually one that I share with audiences. And I think it's really important. So we have a player on the Royals by the name of Hunter Dozier. He was a first round pick guy, plays third base, first base outfield, up, great guy. And he was struggling a couple of years ago. And I was interviewing him in April. And he said, there's nothing worse in baseball than struggling in April. Because if you have a bad two weeks in July. It's just a bad two weeks surrounded by all the rest of your numbers. Think about your numbers and your business or whatever it is. But sometimes when it's a bad January and that's all you have to show for the year, it hurts a lot more. And he said to me, it's not easy being a baseball player. And you step up and you're looking at the biggest television screen in the world that tells everybody how bad you are. And you're seeing how bad your numbers are. He said, So at the end of every game, I go back to my laptop. And this is a younger guy at the time. He was 26 when he told me this. And I add my own numbers. He's not cooking the books. He says, if I hit the ball hard, I give myself a hit. If I moved a runner over and made an out, but I did something to help the team, I give myself a hit. And if my numbers show that I'm batting 500 based on being productive, then I just trust that everything's going to be okay. And I won't let the numbers on that board affect me. It's a great big picture thinking, but if I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do, then I hit the, not the panic button, but now I know that I've got to go in there and work and change some things up. That's again, one of those beautiful lessons um, of baseball. Can I answer Brad's question? Sure. Go ahead. I don't, I don't want to ignore that. I I did a seventh inning stretch in the book. um, And I suppose the next one will have a seventh inning stretch. So maybe that'll be mindfulness. It ended up being more about a relationship and, um, the, the Kansas City Royals star catcher and, and the biggest personality um, that we've had here in my time is, is a guy by the name of Salvador Perez. Um, he and I are forever linked because he's the guy that dumps the Gatorade bucket on the um, player, the star of the game. Well, they call it the Salvi Splash. His nickname is Salvi. You know, it gets pretty cold and after a while the players get sick of it. So guess who ends up being the target of many of those Salvi Splashes? Me. There's a pretty good chance when I walk around town that someone's gonna ask, hey, what, how, much does your, how much does your dry cleaning cost? How many suits have you ruined? And so he and I are forever linked by that. But what I wrote about was one day many years ago, 2013, I think I was introduced to a woman who spoke no English and they said, um, hey, this woman wants to introduce you. She watches you every single night, but she doesn't speak English. So let us translate for you. She wants to take a picture. I said, oh, okay, that's great. She watches you in Venezuela every night. This is Salvador Perez's mom. And oh. I went on to tell a story about a awful, awful mother's day that I was having. I know I'm not a mom, but, um, we were on the road. It was mother's day. And you know, what, what happens with these crazy schedules is you miss a lot of life. And we were having a rough moment at home and it was really ruining my wife's mother's day and I couldn't be there to help. And, I uh, I'm interviewing Salvador Perez on our pregame show. He's wearing the pink hat for Mother's Day and um, he wanted to talk about his mom. And I want to give him a platform to talk about his mom. I love his mom. I mean, we Instagram message each other. I have to look up the translations and then I convert it because I don't speak Spanish and we have a beautiful relationship. It was the worst show and the worst day ever. My broadcast partner, Jeff Montgomery um, had food poisoning the night before. So the whole interview in Cleveland, he's eyeballing the trash can. And I'm eyeballing my phone every time I'm off camera, typing in words of encouragement to my family. And it was just a terrible day. And when we landed on the team charter and I'm about to my to my car and about ready to get the heck out of there and just go hug my family, I hear a voice and it's in his thick accent, Salvador Perez, Joel, Joel, come here. And I walked over to see him. I'm giving away half the book now, my goodness. Um, And um, he says, come here. So I run over and, and I mean, he's world series, MVP, gold glove, all-star. He says, I just wanted to let you know that my mom, my mother-in-law and my fiance want to thank you for all the mother's day shout outs. Wow. No, well, that's why we do it. So I wrote about that in the seventh inning stretch and, and just the, you know, the power of connecting with people.
0: <clears throat> so did that cover the mindfulness thought?
2: I mean, that, uh, I suppose all of it is mindfulness to some extent, although I believe Brad's talking about a, a different part. I'll do something on mindfulness. I mean, I, I'm amazed at the amount of people that I'm meeting every day that are experts, you know, in in the mindfulness and the the deep thinking of, of being in the moment and the journey and slowing things down and, and all that. So there'll be something there. Uh, you know, if, if it helps people and it's relevant to something beyond baseball, it'll it'll work its way into the next book.
0: Um, Can I put one of our authors on the spot, Uh, Jeff Foley? Um, Jeff with a question? Because I'm curious. I'm a curious guy. So you need to unmute yourself. We were talking about that pace in baseball. Uh, Another one of my uh, clients uh, uh, commanded over in Kuwait. And he was talking about, um, he had to to slow some of his people down, that like, um, you, need, you need to take this in a steady gear. You know, you wanna like be up all night and do everything you can, uh, but this is more of a, a slow and steady uh, wins the race type of approach. Do you, do you have a feeling about that?
1: Well, certainly, uh, you know, baseball is not just six months. Uh, from a baseball perspective, they, spring training starts long before that, uh, and there's really only, and really all the major league sports teams goes way beyond just the six or seven months they're competing. I don't even know how the basketball guys do it, but from a military perspective, uh, preparing to fight uh, and deploying and going to wars is a marathon, uh, and you have, you know, you the seventh inning stretch is there for a reason in baseball. Uh, We may or may not have a seventh inning stretch in a a military environment, but somehow you have to work a sleep plan. You cannot be awake 24 hours a day forever. Uh, And so the same concept, the same seventh inning stretch, you have to plan sleep just like you plan all the other things that got to happen. And so, uh, but you learn to endure. You you build up a great endurance and you got to figure out how to, how to manage your body and your health for the marathon because it's not a sprint. That'd be my initial thought on that.
0: General, thank you. Um, And that, that was a good message. I think from you and from Joel and for all of us is um, it's more important what we do on a regular basis with this more than uh, this grand, you know, charge. It's not a sprint. It's not a hundred yard dash. Uh, This is a marathon we're all in. And, We need to be making the connections. We need the relationships. We need um, to do our seminars and our outreach. And that's where the real success comes in. Also, Joel, um, a thought leader is not one and done. It's not, see my book. (laughs) Uh, Thought leaders have a series of books. And I think you're a thought leader, sir. You're a great storyteller. That is your superpower. But you're also a thought leader on a lot of subjects about uh, about life, your, your book and your stories are more about life. And I can see that's why when you speak, uh, what you're giving people is, uh, you know, better morale, better teamwork, um, you're making a difference in those companies through that speaking business. So I just wanted to say bravo for that. Thank you very much for spending time with us. Thank you for everybody who shared today and I just wanted to give a closing shout out to Suzanne. You're doing a great job producing, Suzanne, and we really appreciate you. So thanks, everybody. We'll see you uh, next week or any week. Uh, This is also an opportunity. uh, If you have a question that you wanted to get to Mark or to myself or um, Suzanne, uh, shoot it in the chat box. If you have somebody you think we should have on, I uh, would love to hear from you with an email. So the, the last thing I wanted to lead with is, um, for years I've, I've used a strategy where I just happen to be in some city for someone I, I need to meet. And I've built a lot of relationships. And I learned this from a client who used it to help get his com- company in the Inc. 500 of fastest growing privately held companies. And he would just happen to be going somewhere. But from now on, I'm going to call it the Joel Goldberg, I just happened to be in Terre Haute uh, strategy. So it'll be named after you forever. Thanks, Joel. So thanks, everybody. And we'll see you on future podcasts. Have a great week. Bye-bye.